Well, if you have your Bible, open it to Colossians 1. We're going to continue in our sermon series in Colossians this morning. I'm sure that we'll be back in Isaiah next week. Uh, But as you're flipping there, I just want to give you a little bit of a recap for what we covered last time in Colossians, since that was a couple weeks ago. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14, we saw that the Colossians were supposed to live lives worthy of the Son because they had been redeemed and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we saw that this Son is Jesus Christ, who we saw as the supreme and sufficient King over creation and redemption. And then in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, we saw that King Jesus brings those who were once far off, who were rebels against him, and he brings them into his kingdom so that he can present them holy and blameless and above reproach to his Father. And so in light of this, Paul encouraged the Colossians to continue to hold on to the faith that had been proclaimed to them. And so that brings us to where we start this morning in chapter 1, verse 24, and we're going to read all the way uh, to chapter 2, verse 5. So read along with me. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, would you bless the teaching of your word right now? Father, would you accomplish your purposes through it? And would you Save those who don't know you. And Father, would you use it to build and strengthen your people. And so Father, we trust that you'll do that because you have promised it in your word. And so Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, ever since Stephanie and I started dating, uh, we've tried to find hobbies that we can do together. And so we like playing music together, like going to see bands, even though we obviously can't do that right now. Uh, We like going to coffee shops and playing board games. Uh, And we even like talking about the Bible and theology. 
Uh, but one hobby we don't share is puzzles. Stephanie loves them, and I despise them. They're the worst. Uh, but my lack of interest in puzzles is probably because of my lack of organization. But Stephanie, on the other hand, is a freak when it comes to organization. And I mean freak in the best way possible, not in a bad way. But Stephanie is also, in the best way possible, extremely driven to finish tasks. So when she starts a puzzle, she goes all in. She works nonstop getting the pieces organized in multiple boxes, and then she puts them all together. And she'll even work into the early morning trying to finish a puzzle, or sometimes we'll be watching a movie, and she works on the puzzle throughout the whole movie. Uh, But ultimately, Stephanie loves doing puzzles because she likes that she gets to complete them and see them completed. And so in our text this morning, we see Paul laboring at his own expense to see the body of Christ complete. We see him struggling to see this little church in Colossae mature and complete in Christ. And so in our passage this morning, we're gonna see this main idea. If you're taking notes, write this down. Kids, if you've got your, if you've got your sheet, this is gonna be my sermon in a sentence, so you can write this in that top box. But this is that main idea. It's gospel ministry strives to see God's people mature in Christ. So again, gospel ministry strives to see God's people mature in Christ. In verses 24 through 29, we're going to see stewarding the gospel. That's that main point that we're going to see there. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see concern for the gospel. So we have stewarding the gospel and concern for the gospel. Well, look with me at verse 24. Notice that that first word is now. So Paul's letting us know here that he's, he's starting a new point. He's moving on from talking about the preeminence of Christ. He's now going to talk about his own ministry. And so in this section, we're going to see four things about Paul's ministry. We're going to see Paul's attitude. We're going to see Paul's message. We're going to see Paul's goal. We're going to see Paul's power. So we've got attitude, message, goal, and power. Sorry, I know I have you guys writing a lot right now. I'll repeat those later. Well, first we see Paul's attitude. Notice that it says that he rejoices. And so that word rejoice in the Greek is the verb form of joy. So rejoicing is the act of having joy. It's to do joy. It's to practice gladness. Yet there's something strange going on with his rejoicing that we see in the text. Notice that he says that he rejoices in his sufferings. I don't know about you, but that's, that's weird. So when we think about suffering, think about images of pain, sorrow, tears, probably come to our minds. Maybe you're even thinking of a season of suffering that you're currently going through, or maybe that you've gone through. And yet for some reason, Paul practices joy during pain. He practices joy during sorrow. He practices joy 
during tears. And so why is this? Well, Paul rejoices in his sufferings, as the text says, for your sake. He's suffering for the sake of the Colossians and churches all over the known world. And so again, that's so weird. Why is he suffering for people? For, there's some people that he's, he hasn't even seen before. That's what we see later in the text. Well, flip with me to Acts 9. It should be about 20 pages to your left in your Bible. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, then you know that Paul used to be named Saul, that he used to persecute the church. And so the Paul who's suffering in Colossians used to be the Saul who caused suffering in Acts. And yet, despite Paul's attacks on the church, the Lord Jesus made it clear that he was going to use Saul to carry his gospel throughout the known world. And so you know the story. Saul sees the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded. Then he encounters Ananias, and he's later baptized. And yet, zooming back for a second, in Acts 9.15, we, say that we see that Jesus says this about Paul. The text says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Jesus planned to use Paul to carry his name, to, to proclaim his gospel. But notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 16. He says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So carrying the name of Jesus meant that Paul would suffer for the name of Jesus. And so what's the, what's the purpose of Paul's suffering? Why did Jesus want him to suffer for his name? Well, flip back with me to Colossians 1. And look at the second half of verse 24. Paul says that in his flesh, meaning his body, He's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So we saw last time that that Christ is the head of the body of the church. And this means that Christ is king over his redeemed people. But even more so than that, it means that Christ is one with his people. They're his body. And to accomplish this, Christ had to atone for the sins of his people. And this atonement meant, didn't just cover some of their sin, it didn't just cover most of their sin, it covered all of their sin. And so what does Paul mean when he says that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, this can't mean that there's something lacking in Christ's atonement. That would be to go against what Paul says in Colossians and his other letters, No, what Paul means here is that he had to go through various afflictions for the sake of the building of Christ's church. This is for the sake of the church's growth and maturity, as we'll see later in the text. And so Jesus is now in heaven, but he's commissioned his people to take the gospel into a world that's hostile to the gospel. And where there's hostility, there will be persecution and suffering. And so listen to what Paul had to go through for the sake of the church in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. He says this, Five times 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That 40 lashes less one is what Jesus went through before he went to the cross. And Paul says here that that happened to him five times. That his back basically by the end of his life was, was like jelly. And he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, at a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So what would drive someone to go through all of this? Only the joy of serving Christ. And there's no better way to serve Christ than by serving his body. This is the body, the church that Christ bought with his own blood. And so it's then Paul's joy to suffer for what Christ suffered for. He rejoices in his suffering because it's for the benefit of the body. And so while most of us won't be called to a ministry like Paul's, we're not called to be apostles, we're not called, um, we don't have the specific calling like he did to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Yet we do need to seek to have an attitude like Paul's. And so believer, do you believe that Christ's body is worth suffering for? Do you believe that Christ's body is worthy of your time, money, and resources? And is the good of Christ's people something that gives you joy? The sake of the church is worthy of our suffering because she was bought by the blood of Christ. And so the church is precious to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that means that you're precious to Jesus. And so do you believe that the church is worth suffering for? Well, we've seen that Paul rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of Christ's body. But how did the body benefit from Paul's suffering? Well, look with me at verses 25 through 27. Here we see Paul's message. Verse 24 ended by talking about the church. And verse 25 begins with that phrase, of which. And so this means that what follows in verse 25 through 27 will show what what Paul's been called to by God for the church. So notice that the text says that Paul is a minister according to the stewardship from God. That word stewardship can also mean administration or management. And so this word might make us think of a boss or maybe, maybe a manager in a, in a workplace. They're in charge of a department and they're tasked with managing the resources and employees that department's been given. And so the manager needs to steward these resources to the best of their ability so that the company can make a profit and so that they can succeed. So what's Paul been given to steward? What's he in charge of or what's his task? 
Well, verse 25 tells us that Paul was to make the word of God fully known. So what does Paul mean here when he says word of God? Well, look with me at verse 26. We don't have to wonder. Paul tells us. The word of God here is this mystery. And so we shouldn't look at this word mystery and infer that the word of God is somehow unknowable. This word mystery refers to an unfolding plan of God's redemption. And so it was once hidden for ages and generations, meaning that it wasn't fully known. But Paul goes on to say that the mystery has now been revealed to his saints. And so what's been revealed to his saints? Well, look with me at verse 27. The text says that Paul, or that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry. And so in other words, this mystery isn't just for the Jewish people, the physical descendants of Abraham. It's for the Gentiles as well. And so if you're unfamiliar with that term Gentile, it just means someone who's not ethnically Jewish, so, which I'm assuming that's most of you. That's me too. And so while the substance of this good news for the Gentiles was hidden, it could still be seen in shadows in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 3, God gave good news to all of mankind when he told the first man and woman that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent, the one who deceived them. And then later in Genesis 22:18, read that this offspring will come through the line of Abraham and that he will be a blessing to all of the nations. Then in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9, we see that this offspring will come from David's line and that he'll be a king that rules in peace forever. So you might be asking, who's this king that will bring peace to the whole world and bless all the nations? In Matthew 1, we see that this king is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the one who Colossians says is the true king over all of creation and redemption. And so his kingdom doesn't just include those from ethnic Israel. It includes people from all nations that have trusted in the true Israel, Jesus Christ. And so while this mystery was hinted at in shadows in the Old Testament, it's now been revealed in Christ, in clarity. And so in this revealed mystery, we see that Christ now dwells in his multi-ethnic church. This is why the text says, Christ in you. He's present with us by his spirit. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And so the good news of the kingdom is, is for all people, regardless of their ethnicity or nationality. And those in this kingdom, notice what the text says, have the hope of glory, meaning that they have eternal life with Christ in this kingdom. So brothers and sisters, this is our hope. But for my unbelieving friends that are listening, let me just say that, that you too can have this hope of glory. Everyone who comes to Christ by faith and turns from their sin can have eternal life with Christ. And so when I say everyone, I don't just mean the people that seem to have it all together or the people who seem to do all the right things or come from the right ethnic group or come from the best uh, country. 
All of us, which includes me and you, deserve death. We've all sinned, meaning that we've disobeyed God, our creator. Yet God is gracious. It's his heart to show compassion and love. And so he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live the life that you and I couldn't live. And he sent Jesus to die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he sent Jesus to be raised to life so that you and I can live in him. And he'll one day return to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom will be forever and ever. And so if you trust in him, he'll forgive you of all of your sins that he even paid for himself. And you'll be able to enjoy fellowship with him forever in his kingdom. You'll have this hope of glory. But if you don't turn to him, then he'll not save you from his wrath on that day. And so friend, place your trust in Christ today. Even though he's our all-powerful God and King, the scriptures say that he's also gentle and lowly, and he's willing and able to graciously bring you into his kingdom. Well, we've seen the message that Paul was charged to proclaim, and now we're going to see his goal in verse 28. Look at it with me. In verse 28, we see that this verb, proclaim, and so this can also be translated as, as to preach. And so Paul's talking about preaching the message that he's been given. And we've seen that this message is the mystery of Christ that's been revealed. But notice that proclaim is followed by two ing words. And so these are called participles, and they help us understand what Paul's proclamation looks like. So we can see here that Paul's preaching look like warning and teaching. And this warning and teaching is aimed at everyone. When Paul says everyone, I, I don't think right here he means every person. I, it seems that everyone is connected to the saints that we see at the end of verse 26. But this doesn't mean that Paul only shared the gospel with certain people. He shared the gospel with all people, and he wanted all people to come to know Christ. But Paul's goal here was to also warn and teach the saints. Why? So that they would be mature. Paul here is like a good father that seeks to instruct his children. He doesn't want them to be swayed by the things of this world. And so Paul warned the saints so that they wouldn't trust in a lesser Christ made by human imaginations. And Paul taught the saints so that they would know who the true Christ is. And so he wanted them to grow in knowledge and wisdom of Christ so that they would be mature in Christ. And so you see, Paul took the Great Commission seriously. He wasn't just interested in getting converts, though he was interested in getting converts. He wasn't ultimately consumed with getting butts in the seats or getting names on the membership roster. He wanted God's people to know and do all that Christ commanded. And so, brothers and sisters, this should be our concern as well. We want to see com people converted. We want to see people baptized. We want to see people brought into the membership of our church. But we also want them to be mature. 
We don't want them to be baby Christians forever. We want them to grow in all wisdom and knowledge that's found in Christ. So we're going to come back to this idea in our next section. But we can see that Paul's goal was to be able to present to Christ a church that was mature in Christ. And so this brings us to verse 29. Here we'll see Paul's power. So he started off this verse by saying, for this I toil. And the this there is referring to the maturity of the saints that we've seen in verse 28. And Paul labored for this. He toiled for this. But notice what his toil looked like. His toil looked like struggling. And so struggling might not fully communicate what's going on here. The word that's translated as struggle here comes from the root word for our word agony. And so we can see that Paul's labors for the church to be mature were deeply painful. They were, it was hard. And we've already established the kind of suffering that Paul had to go through to accomplish this task. Yet notice how he struggles. The text says that Paul struggled with his energy. This energy that powerfully worked within him. And so based off the previous verse, the he here is Christ. Christ didn't call Paul to labor without the tools he needed to succeed. Paul had the energy and power to complete his task because Christ gave him the greatest power source of all, himself. And so brothers and sisters, we can find comfort in this as well. That if you've been united to Christ by faith, then you have Christ's power working within you. So we don't have to grow weary in our task to bring the gospel to our city. We don't have to grow weary in our task to bring the gospel to our friends and family. We don't have to grow weary in our task to help one another reach maturity in Christ. We can labor for Christ's body because we have Christ as our very head. He has infinite power to give us because he himself is God. And so yes, the work will be hard. Yes, the work requires our time and resources. Yes, some of us might even be called to endure great suffering for the sake of Christ. Yet we need to remember that Christ's body is precious to him and he'll provide all the strength we need so that he can one day present us holy, blameless, and above reproach to the Father. And so let's labor with Christ, and let's labor with his strength to that end. Well, we've seen Paul's stewardship of the gospel, and now we're gonna see his concern for the gospel. And we're gonna find that in chapter two, verses one through five. And so we're going to see two things here. We're going to see Paul's desire in verse 1 through 3. And then we're going to see Paul's concern in verses 4 through 5. So look with me at verse 1. Notice that Paul uses the word struggle again. And so in the previous section, we mentioned that Paul struggled for all the saints. And so in this section, Paul's specifically talking about his struggle for the Colossians and for those in Laodicea, and all those who haven't seen him face to face. And so if you didn't know, Laodicea was actually 
a neighboring town to Colossae. So it's very likely that this false teaching that was affecting the Colossians was also affecting them as well. And so if you flip a couple pages to the right, you'll see that Paul wanted the Laodiceans to read this letter as well. That in Colossians 4.16 it says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And so Paul hadn't met the church at Laodicea. He hadn't met the church in Colossae. And so why is Paul writing to them? Why is he concerned, even though he's never seen them face to face? Well, Paul wants them to know that he also wants them to be mature in Christ. And so the care he showed towards all the saints was also for them, even though they'd never seen him. And so look with me at verse 2. We can see what this maturity looks like. We can first see that Paul wants them to be encouraged in their hearts. And so Paul, how does Paul intend for this to happen? Well, he goes on to say, by being knit together in love. My mother-in-law is a quilter. When we go visit her, she's often stitching patterns together and or knitting together a design. Hopefully those are the right terms. And when she does this, she adds one strand of thread at a time. And while this takes a lot of time and effort, she always ends up with this beautiful, intricate design. And so this is what Paul wanted for the Colossians. He wanted them to be knitted together. He wanted them to be threaded together by their love. And so this is what a local church should be known for. A local church should be known for their love for each other. That's what Becca prayed earlier. The reason why is because we've been loved by God so much that we should also love one another. And so we saw this earlier in Colossians 1.4 that Paul said, he talks about the Colossians' love for all of the saints. And then our Lord Jesus himself says this in John 13.35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then picking up on this, the Apostle John in his first letter to the churches, in verse 314, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who doesn't love remains in death. And so if you want to see the heartbeat of a local church, look for its love. Our love for one another is how, the, is how we show that we're alive in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that, that I see this love in you. Yet our love for one another should grow as we seek to know Christ through his word. And so the aim of our love as a church is that we would all reach all the riches of full assurance and the knowledge of God's mystery. That's what we see in our text. But notice that we see that word mystery again. This term was used earlier in our passage to talk about the revelation of Christ and him being in his people who are made up of both Jew and Gentile. Yet we also see here that God's mystery is Christ himself. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the maturity that we're laboring for as a church. We want to be a community that knows and acts like Christ. 
This is why we, we gather together as a church, that we wanna help one another know Christ through his word. That when we sit under the preaching of the word, we're reminded of what Christ has done, and we're instructed in how we can follow him. And when we sing together, Colossians is later gonna say that, we, that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. And when we pray together, we teach one another how to talk with God through Christ. And when we take the Lord's Supper together, we help make this mystery visible. We display that Christ invites his people who were once his enemies to have fellowship with him through the meal. And so, Lord willing, we're gonna hopefully be able to do that together again soon. But until then, we can still labor to help one another know Christ. So if you're not already, then I would encourage you to find a way to spend time with other believers to talk about God's word. This can be done through a one-to-one Bible study. This can be done through one of our summer studies. You can do these things through Zoom. Uh, you don't have to be in person. I know that some of us are worried about that right now. And this can even happen through, being a meal to get, through having a meal together and asking each other what you've been learning through Sunday sermons or through your summer Bible study. And so there's a variety of ways that we can help one another grow in maturity. And so the reason why we labor to help one another know Christ is found in verse three. Paul says that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so this is true because Jesus isn't merely a man. He wasn't just some good teacher. He's the eternal Son of God. And he, alongside the Father and the Spirit, sharing in the divine nature, know all things and have all wisdom. Yet this isn't just true because Jesus is God. As God's revealed mystery, Jesus is the true purpose behind all of creation, all of history, and all of the scriptures. He's the one whom all things were created through and for. He's the one who is the head of the church. He's the one that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in. And he's the one who will reconcile all things to himself through his blood. And so you see, Jesus isn't just, a mere, he isn't just merely a good starting point for wisdom and knowledge. That's what the false teachers wanted the Colossians to believe. Jesus is the starting point, the center point, and the end point, and everything in between. So if we want to have true knowledge and wisdom, then we need to come to Christ. If we want to be a community that's knit together in love, then we need to know and treasure Christ. And if we want our hearts to be encouraged, then we need to labor to help one another know and treasure Christ. Well, we've established that Paul desired for the Colossians to grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ, but now he's going to tell them about his concern for them. Look with me at verse four. Paul starts off the verse by saying, I say this. The this here is referring back to verse three. And so Paul wanted them to know that Christ is the one in whom all wisdom and knowledge are found because he didn't want them to be deluded with plausible arguments. And so that word deluded can also mean deceived. 
And so Paul didn't want them to be deceived by the arguments that these false teachers were making. Again, they just treated Jesus as if he was a good starting point to gaining better wisdom. And so they thought that you really needed Jesus plus some new type of revelation or experience. Or you needed Jesus plus observing the Sabbath holidays. Or you needed Jesus plus asceticism. And so they thought that those things were what really made one wise. But look at the end of chapter two with me. This is chapter two, verse 23. It says, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The wisdom that these false teachers sought couldn't make them mature in Christ. It couldn't make them stop the indulgence of the flesh. And so brothers and sisters, the, the wisdom and knowledge of this world can't make you holy. Only faith in Christ can. And so if we try to clean ourselves up while neglecting Christ and his means of grace, then we won't grow in our love for God. We won't truly grow in our love for our neighbor. So if we want to grow into maturity as believers, then we have to humbly come to Christ together. And so believer, are you are you tired from laboring to put sin to death on your own? Weary Christian, Christ wants to help you. It's his heart to help and draw near to his people when they're weak and weary from their sin. And one of the main ways that he helps us when we're weak and weary from sin is through his people. So don't isolate yourself from Christ's body. Isolation from other believers is where the lies of this world go strongest. And so brothers and sisters, run to the body. Don't run for it. Don't run from it. Christ tangibly cares for his people through his people. And so he's given us each other so that we can help one another reach maturity in him. So again, Paul is concerned about the Colossians' maturity in Christ. This is why Paul grounds verse four with verse five. And so look at verse five with me. Paul says that though he was absent in body, he was present with them in spirit. That sounds kind of weird. But what, Paul wasn't merely saying that he's thinking about them or, or sending them good vibes. Based off the rest of the book, Paul probably has their union in Christ with mine by the Spirit. And so even though they were separated physically, they were spiritually connected in Christ. And yet notice that word rejoice is used again. We saw at the beginning of the passage that Paul rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the body. Now Paul's rejoicing to see their good order and firmness of faith in Christ. And so these were things that could probably already describe this church in Colossae. Yet Paul didn't want them to be out of order and to be swaying in their faith. He didn't want this false teaching to bring chaos to the church. Instead, he wanted them to be mature in Christ. 
He wanted them to trust in their sufficient Savior and to live lives that were worthy of Christ. And so their maturity is what gave him joy. It's what he struggled for. It's what he suffered for, even though he wasn't physically present with them. And so Paul gave his life for the good of Christ's body. And so I ask these questions again. Do you believe that Christ's body is worth suffering and laboring for? Do you believe that Christ's body is worthy of your time, money, and resources? And is the good of Christ's people something that gives you joy? Well, brothers and sisters, the maturity of Christ's body is worth laboring for because he's bought her with his blood. Brothers and sisters, he's bought you with his blood. And so let's labor by his grace to that end. Let's pray.